Thank you so much, John. Love your joy. And thank you so much, Joshua, just for all your help with uh, serving our church and helping us to stay connected during this time of the coronavirus. And uh, church, wish we could be just in your immediate presence at this time, but in the times that we're in, we're seeking to do everything we can to just edify and build you up however we can. And we do thank God for the technology to be able to run a live stream like this. Um, but please know that our hearts are with you. We're praying for you and that we love you very much in the Lord. And so with that, would you open up your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the last chapter in 2 Samuel. And uh, we're going to be looking at the question, can the king deliver from wrath? Can the king deliver from wrath? And we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 24 together. So would you open up your Bibles, your phones, and read along in God's word together with me? Thank you. Let's begin 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from, the, from that city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre. And all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come? To you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Amen. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, 
It is enough. Now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Empower me, Holy Spirit. Anoint the preaching of your word and touch all of our hearts this morning with fresh sightings of Christ, your son from the Old Testament here in Second Samuel 24. Blow our minds with your goodness and the glory of your gospel yes. as we look at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at three points this morning. Number one, the king's sin. Number two, the king's appeal. And number three, the king's offerings. Let's look at point one, the king's sin. Well, as we just read, uh, the numbering of the people of Israel by David in taking the census that was unauthorized by the Lord. There were previous censuses in the Old Testament that were authorized by the Lord. This one was not. This was an act of David that displeased the Lord. Matthew Henry writes of this, For the people's sin, David was left to act wrong, and in his chastisement they received punishment. This example throws light upon God's government on the world and furnishes a useful lesson. The pride of David's heart was his sin in numbering of the people. He thought thereby to appear the more formidable, trusting in an arm of flesh more than he should have done. And though he had written so much of trusting in God only, God judges not of sin as we do. What appears to us harmless, or at least but a small offense, may be a great sin in the eye of God, who discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Even ungodly men can discern evil tempers and wrong conduct in believers, as Joab does here of which they themselves often remain unconscious. But God seldom allows those whom he loves the pleasures they sinfully covet. There must have been a real pleasure and a delight. As Job says, why does the king delight in this thing? There was a delight that it 
sinfully gave to David because sin is pleasurable and taking the numbers of the valiant men of Israel and Judah, there was a delight that David felt, no doubt perhaps from the the power of getting that number of the mighty men of Israel and Judah combined to see how massive his kingdom and his army had become. But this was something that he did without inquiring of the Lord over. Now we we learn here that the Lord was involved. And we'll see some more of the agency that was involved as well. But focusing on David's sin here, it, it is a temptation to look to the arm of our own strength and to put our put our hope in our own strength rather than in the Lord. It's a common tendency and a temptation even for God's people. We could take stock of our numbers so that we can delight in how strong we have become as an act that satisfies selfish ambition and pride. But those kinds of acts grieve the Lord. In Psalm 20, David actually says that some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now there's a righteous stand. There is an act of righteousness and goodness that David alludes to and writes explicitly in Psalm 20. But here we actually see David going against that word by numbering the people of Israel in the census. He's trusting in the arm of his own might and in the numbers of his own army to do so. And in doing this, David recognizes later that he had sinned foolishly against the Lord in doing this thing. He got a warning even from Joab. Why do you delight in this thing? And you got to wonder when, when, when Joab's your moral compass, it ought to be a red flag to you that, you know what, something might be off here. I'm not seeking the Lord. I've got Joab, who's, who's not Nathan the prophet. It's Joab saying that this thing's wrong. And Joab in this case was right. His counsel was right. But we see that David prevailed and, and his will was so strong to do this thing that he actually carried on and incurred guilt that affected not only him, but also the entire nation of Israel. You know, during this uh, season and this time um, of the coronavirus, there's been a lot of questions related to who's responsible for it. I was reading some articles this past week where there's a lot of blame lately being placed directly onto China for it. And, uh, and whether or not China was accidentally responsible or perhaps was there even something more sinister or deliberate on the part of China that caused the coronavirus outbreak to take place? Now, whether it was China or whether it was accidental or whether it was deliberate is not what we're debating here today. But the issue is, is people are really concerned about who was responsible for this thing breaking out, this plague, this pestilence that has come upon us in this time. But here we get a reminder in 2 Samuel 24 of who's ultimately responsible for every single occurrence in the universe at all times, in every place. He's sovereign over every atom and every molecule in the universe. We see that the source of, of what happens here in 2 Samuel 24 when it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
Now, we don't know all the reasons why the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel in this moment. It's about 970 B.C. because the, 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 the prosperity of the kingdom of Israel and Judah was, was, was up there. We see this with the census and the results of the census. But, but the Lord has his reasons. We learned earlier in 2 Samuel that because of the sins of Saul in killing the Gibeonites, the Lord remembered the promise that Israel made to the Gibeonites 300 years prior. And because Saul killed the Gibeonites, the Lord held Israel responsible and brought judgment upon them. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel for something Saul had done in violation of the word that the Israelites gave 300 years before. So the, we, we got to remember who, who has known the mind of the Lord, who, who has been his counselor. He always does what is right, and he always has just and wise and best reasons for why he does what he does. So if the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, one thing we can be sure of, the judge of all the earth will do right. He always will do right, as Genesis 18 says. But we see he is sovereignly behind all of this. So God is responsible. He is, as Wayne Grudem calls the Lord, he is the primary cause of every single thing that comes to pass. God is. He is sovereign over good. He is sovereign over evil. He is in control of every single thing. And that ought to bring peace and comfort to us, that we are in the hands of, as David says, a merciful God who is slow to anger, and abounding in love. And so if he's if he's provoked to anger, there's good reason for it. And so we trust him. And we look to him. We also see though that in, in the in the account of this passage in the book of Chronicles, we see an insight as to who else is responsible for what takes place here. The Cambridge Bible commentary says, First Chronicles twenty one one reads, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So we get an insight here that God's sovereign over this. He ordains this for his own good purposes, but Satan, out of his own wicked purposes and desires for evil intent, is the one behind inciting David specifically to sin. He tempts him, David sins, but God is sovereign over all of it. We, we learn this throughout the scriptures that Satan can never do anything. Satan can never do anything to tempt, to tempt. Satan tempts and tempts to destroy and harm. And Satan is the one who's responsible for the temptations to sin and, and, and evil in the universe. God is sovereign over it, but is never the author of sin. He is never the one morally responsible for sin. Satan is responsible and man, in this case, Israel and King David are responsible for the plague. Satan is responsible for the plague. Now God is sovereign over the plague and his sovereignty rules over all. And so there's mystery here into how it is that the Lord specifically moved, but we see that the Lord sovereignly ordains for Satan to incite David to sin here because God is angry at Israel. There's a lot going on here, but we see an intricate detail 
account here, detailed account of the sovereignty of God, the mysterious sovereignty of God, the good sovereignty of God in action. So God is responsible in good. Satan is responsible for harm. David is responsible out of sin. And Israel is responsible out of its guilt corporately. There's a lot happening here. And so we see all of that. And so when we look at who's responsible, we see all of those answers played out here in 2 Samuel 24 and also in the account in Chronicles. You know, trusting in chariots and in horses, we can wonder, you know, how can I apply this to my own life? Let me just give just a few practical applications for us on ways in which we need to not trust in chariots and in horses or men, but trust in God and God alone. We can be tempted to trust in our own money or our own financial resources or give way to fear over the lack of those things. Um, Financial security can be a false god. It can be a false refuge. It can be a source of great anxiety. I think if these things cause us great anxiety, sometimes that can be indicative of the fact that we are looking to the arm of our own strength sometimes. And God is very kind to forgive us and patient with us in these struggles. But we want to take seriously the temptation. Or if you feel like, you know what, actually, we're we're doing pretty good financially through all of this. And there could be a temptation to trust in and feel a sense of security in the provision rather than in the giver of the provision. And so we want to make sure that we don't in sort of a a self-satisfied pride like David had sort of delight in the numbers in our bank account that we are safe, we are secure. We want to trust in God alone and rely upon, that's a good word, rely upon God alone. I remember when there was a family in New Jersey, you might remember this, early on when the coronavirus first hit, there was a family in New Jersey where four family members after a Sunday night dinner together died. It was a very well-known story and it, it caused a lot of fear to be stirred up in people like oh my goodness look at how fast this, this thing spreads and how it can harm but then what happened was people realized when they looked at the detail of the family members and they looked at the pictures of the people who actually died they saw that in some cases that they were older people or they saw in some cases that they were obese people and there was this temptation that people had of like Okay, well, I'm not obese, and I'm not in the age bracket, and so therefore, I'm safe. There could be a trusting in our own health rather than a trust in God or a reliance upon that we don't fall into a certain age bracket, and so we're good. We're not the vulnerable. Or that, you know what, I'm healthy, I'm in shape, and therefore, I'm good, and I'm going to make it through. Rather than relying upon God Alone, We've got to be very careful. These things are subtle when they come and they tempt us. Um, I've never seen such a time, and, and maybe some of you can attest to this as well, where I've seen on such full display just the passage in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 15, which says, let's begin in verse 14 of James 4. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Looking up at verse 13 in James chapter 4, 
the word of God says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, James says. If there's ever a time where we have seen a worldwide, collective, God shutting down the plans of man, nobody had this plan for 2020. That's right. But we see the sovereignty of God at work in that he is God and we are man. We ought to learn the lesson and say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such tomorrow. Because we are not promised that our plans, we, we plan and we rely upon our plans as if somehow we are sovereign. This is an opportunity for us to humble ourselves in the spirit of this passage and say, God, I'm not sovereign, you're sovereign. I'm not in control, you're in control. And rather than being frantic about that, it's time for us, church, to bow our knees. Friend, bow your knees to the sovereignty of God and acknowledge that you are not God. We are creatures. He is the creator, the sovereign one of the universe. And we are to fall on our knees and say, Lord, if it's your will, I'll take another breath in just a moment. But as we often don't do that, James exhorts us that all such boasting is evil. And David no doubt wanted to boast in the men and the numbers from his census. And that's what took place here with the king's sin. Moving on to point two. So let us not trust in our own finances, our own health, or our own plans. Let us trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. Point two is the king's appeal. The king's appeal. And we see this in in the verses 10 through 17, where first we read in verse 10 that David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. One of the things you got to love about God's working with David is after he sinned, there was a deep godly sorrow and contrition. There was a responsiveness to God when after he sinned, the Lord made him aware of his sin. He would respond with passionate repentance toward the Lord. May we all do the same. I was really moved and I just want to recommend to you uh, the Valley of Vision, this collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. I had this and there's, it's such an excellent resource to spark and ignite fire into your prayer life during this time. I want to highly recommend it to you. But we see often that what, what bothers us isn't what bothers God. And the things that don't bother us often bother God. And we need to come more into alliance and conformity to the word of God and understand that the Lord is affected by our sin. David realizes it here, but the Valley of Vision prayer that I want to highlight is a prayer called Passion. And in that prayer, the writer of the prayer says, There is in all all wrongs and crosses a double cross. That which crosses me and that which crosses thee. My sin is that my heart 
is pleased or troubled as things please or trouble me without having a regard to Christ. At first, David did not have a regard to Christ, to God, in relation to how his sin affected God. He was blind to it, but the Lord opened his eyes mercifully. And here we start to see the mercy of the Lord take root. David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I love how he first responds vertically. Before he goes to Joab and the people of Israel, he goes directly to the Lord. One of the ways you know that we have genuine repentance is when we go to the Lord and go to him first. Godly sorrow goes upward before it goes horizontal. And you see David here, he says, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, Lord. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, there was an instant forgiveness. And there was a definite playing out of consequences after that, but it didn't happen right away. Here, we see that the Lord certainly is going to forgive David of his sin, but there's also consequences that are striking and dramatic to David's sin. It's, it's really a, a, a sobering passage in that regard. Um, we see that David's sin of numbering the people of Israel against God's will, even though he's sorry for it, must be punished. So the Lord gave him three choices, famine for three years, fleeing from man for three months, or pestilence for three days. Brothers and sisters, really just an important note here. Sorrow for sin is not enough. There must be atonement made for sin. There must be wrath satisfied, justice satisfied for sin. Sorrow alone does not deliver a sinner from sin. There must be a sacrifice of atonement that's offered up in order for the Lord to be satisfied. Wrath must be satisfied. And here we see the, the wrath of the Lord come upon the people of Israel for three days with this pestilence that hits where 70,000 people in Israel Die. David actually chooses the pestilence wisely because he says, let us fall into the hands of God and not into the hands of men for our God is merciful. And I love that description of God being merciful. He says, he says, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. It's also important to note that the sin of numbering the people, which earlier gave him great delight, led to great distress. Sin is pleasurable, the Bible talks about in Hebrews 11, but it always ends in distress. Sin leads to distress and eternal distress, if unrepented of, eternal distress in hell upon the unrepentant who don't trust in Jesus Christ and don't let go of their sin. Sin is pleasurable for the moment, but in the end it leads to death, Scripture says, so our sin works our distress and our destruction, and we see it happen here. The angel of the Lord comes and strikes down 70,000 Israelites all throughout the land, but when he came to Jerusalem and was about to destroy it, mercifully, David was right. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, it is enough, now stay your hand. 
It's like the destroying angel, the night of the Exodus. This angel of the Lord moved throughout the land of Israel and struck down the Israelites like at the Passover. Matthew Henry writes of this, in the very place where Abraham was stayed from slaying his son, this angel by a like counterman was stayed from destroying Jerusalem. It is for the sake of the great sacrifice that our forfeited lives are preserved from the destroying angel. And in David is the spirit of a true shepherd of the people offering himself as a sacrifice to God for the salvation of his subjects. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we are often more shocked by just wrath than we are by grace. And this ought not to be. None of us are worthy of the grace of God as sinners. And it ought not to shock us that the Lord comes and strikes down guilty sinners who helped participate in sin. This census represented a great wickedness on the part of the king, but also the guilt of the people of Israel was great. God was not unjust in bringing a plague upon the people. And we must always make note of that. What's glorious and amazing here is that David cries out, let your hand be against me. This is the king's appeal. Let your hand be against me, Lord. And against my father's house. Now, David could not step in as a substitute. When David cried out, let your hand be against me. Well, like Isaac before with Abraham, when Abraham was going to offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is where we're at right here in this context, Abraham was prevented as the father from needing to make that sacrifice. The angel of the Lord came and stopped that sacrifice from being offered because God instead provided another. His own son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath and atoned for sin. So King Jesus said essentially to his father, when he willingly died for us, Father, King David's appeal in 2 Samuel 24 could not be granted because King David was not good enough. He takes up King David's appeal, the Lord Jesus, and he says, Father, let your hand be against me as I hang up here on the cross so that sinners in Christ Community Church who repent of their sins and trust in me might have the wrath Avert it toward their souls as you bring it and have it fall upon me. God's mercy, brothers and sisters, is indeed great. Better to fall into the hands of God than in the hands of man. For the mercy of God is great. And when it came time for God to stretch out his hand over Jerusalem and bring the plague and bring death upon that city, God relented. For his mercy is great. But strikingly enough, and let us all take this to heart, the Lord did not relent from the calamity that he brought upon Jesus, his son. When he died on the cross for my sins and yours, 
He said to the angel of the Lord, Here, stay your hand. And wrath ceased. But Jesus received no such staying of hand. When he was on the cross, hanging there for you and for me. Jesus felt the last full measure of God's wrath. And God's justice needed to save us from our sin. Let your hand be against me, David said. And it's like the Lord says, you're not good enough, King David, but I'm going to send a king who will be good enough to answer that appeal. And he will die. He will suffer on behalf of his people. My son, this is awesome. It's awesome. And how do we respond to this church? Gratefulness. Faith, trust in Christ, thankfulness, praise, adoration, worship, unending worship. For our God, indeed, his mercy is great. And in answer, can the king deliver from wrath? Yes, but not King David. Only King Jesus can do it. And the final point is the king's offering. The angel of the Lord worked destruction on behalf of Yahweh. And we've learned at other times throughout the Old Testament that he is an angel that does not stop the people of God from worshiping him when they see him as other mere angels do. It is thought that these references to, quote, the angel of the Lord are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ himself. So we want to see Christ in all of scripture. What's awesome about 2 Samuel 24 is we actually see David here in this passage. He gets a glimpse of the angel of the Lord, literally, right when he's about to destroy Jerusalem. It says that the angel was in the midst of striking the people when King David saw him. David saw the pre-incarnate Christ. That's seeing Christ in the scripture. And here we see that the one who will one day bear our wrath is God's agent of wrath as he will be once again when he returns in wrath on the day of judgment, bringing all of us who have been saved from that wrath safely home to enjoy him forever in heaven, but unleashing wrath and fury that will never end upon unrepentant sinners in hell bringing utter destruction that will be it'll make 70,000 dying in this plague or all the thousands of people that are dying during the coronavirus it will be like nothing when Christ comes on the day of wrath and the day of judgment are you ready for that day there's something more dangerous and more terrifying than the coronavirus And it is King Jesus when he returns on the day of wrath. The amazing thing is, is this king who is the agent of bringing the wrath of Yahweh down is actually the one who hung up on the cross willingly to bear that wrath 
if you'll repent and believe. But today is the day. Today is the day, friend. Don't delay. Don't delay. Now is the time to repent and believe. The ESV study Bible speaking of this section here where David offers up the offering at the threshold, at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. He says this, Hear the suffering of the sheep for the sin of their king is reversed when Christ suffers for the sins of the sheep. So here the sheep suffer for the king's sin with Christ. Christ suffers for the people's sin. Christ's suffering answers David's request. Now the one appeal of David's that could not be answered was when David appealed, let your hand be against me. But the second half of that appeal was answered. The second half of that appeal was Let your hand be against my father's house. His father, Jesse, gave birth to David. And David gave birth to the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, came down through the line of David's father's house, Jesse. And so this very appeal, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The Lord says, I, my hand will be against your father's house because I will punish my son and thus punish your father's house for the sins of my people. A king was needed who was good enough, who was worthy to open the scroll, who was strong enough to bear the wrath of God in the place of the people of God who would lay down his life for the sheep. There is a king who can deliver you from wrath today, just wrath. But it's not David, it's Jesus. And instead of Isaac being slain on Mount Moriah, this very context by his father Abraham, God the Father sent the angel of the Lord to stop Abraham from killing his own son. Instead, God the Father would make that sacrifice himself by sending his own son Jesus to be slain as an atoning sacrifice. Here in 970 BC, after David's sin, God stops the angel of the Lord from destroying Jerusalem in just wrath and averts the plague. This is awesome. He averts the plague. This place of offering at the very site where the temple was built. Mercy is needed here at this threshing floor. David buys the land, buys sacrifices to offer up here at the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. This spot here becomes the spot, and we learn it from Chronicles, where David at this spot cites it as the place where he wants to see the temple be built. And then Solomon builds it at this site where mercy was needed. God had his temple be built. And it travels all the way through into the New Testament where 
the Old Testament temple of Solomon, even in all of its glory, simply prefigured or pointed to the true temple, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, Pharisees, and I will raise it up again on the third day. Jesus, whom the temple always pointed to. Jesus, where man comes, where man can only come to meet God, is the very temple who was carried outside of the walls of Jerusalem and struck down so that man, by trusting in Christ, might be reconciled to God and be saved from their sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, the plague was averted on the third day for Israel here. And the plague was averted on the third day for us when Christ rose from the dead. This offering that David offers up here at cost to himself is the very city where God would one day send his son. And when the moment came to strike down his son, no one held his hand back, but he delivered the blow near Mount Moriah that Abraham was spared from giving to his only son. God the Father struck down his only son. But then on the third day, delivered all of us who believe out from a greater pestilence and plague than a coronavirus or this plague or any other danger could even compare to a greater plague, the plague of the wrath of God due to our sin, the justice of God coming down upon us in hell forever. God has delivered every true believer in Christ by justifying us on the third day in his son's resurrection from the grave. His son died as a peace offering, a burnt offering, a sin offering for the sins of his people. David offered up sacrifice to the Lord that cost him something. But here we see that all of these offerings only pointed to the offering who would one day come, the true offering, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who will take away your sin as he's taken away mine if you'll just repent and believe and trust in him today. Friend, when we see the Lord move, bringing pestilence to the nation in this way, we should all of us repent and take to heart that God is the same as he has ever been or will ever be. We must not ever presume upon God's grace or think that we are better than those who perished in these times. Instead, we, re- we should respond in true repentance and in faith. We should offer up the offering of our very lives. And like David, we should have a mindset of, I will not offer up to the Lord that which costs me nothing. There is a cost to following Jesus. It will cost you your very life. You need to lay behind your old life in order to come and follow Jesus. I mean, it is so worth it. Mm-hmm. But friend, salvation in Christ is free, but it, it wasn't cheap. It really does cost you your very life to turn away from your old life. And as Jesus says, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. Let us in the spirit of David today offer up our lives in spirit and truth to worship and let our life be an offering 
unto the Lord. Let us respond in repentance and in faith. Because there's good news. The pestilence of eternal damnation that would have been ours, Christ willingly took on himself in order to save us from it. And in this way, the plague was averted, not just from Israel on this day in 970 BC, but the plague is averted from us because of the sacrifice and the offering of King Jesus Mm. on the cross. Mm. Is not our God merciful? Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. Lord, our sin is great, but your mercy is greater. We thank you so much that you are willing to forgive sinners this morning who will come to you in repentance and in faith. Lord, you struck down your only son and poured out your righteous and holy wrath against my sin upon him on the cross so that I don't ever need to endure it. So my brothers and sisters never need to endure it. What a great salvation you have worked on our behalf. Thank you so much, Jesus, for willingly suffering like this and dying for us. Lord, I pray that anybody who has not trusted in you, Lord, there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is it. You are the only sacrifice available. You are the only one who can avert the plague from our lives. Lord, I pray that everybody in the hearing of this message would trust in you genuinely and be saved. Let them not trust in their own works, in their own performances, in their own good life. Let them all see that as, Lord, the false security that it is. Help them not to trust and what their own good works have done, and what man can do, but put their trust only in what you can do, and put their trust fully in you. Mm -hmm. I ask you to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to close with some worship. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 12. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. Oh, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Lord, thank you that you do not forget our cry. Thank you. That you hear every prayer. That you see every tear. That you see every illness and every disease. And that you are sovereign and merciful. Lord, I pray as we go that you would remind us of this every day. And that our hearts would go out to those around us. So that we might be merciful 
as you have been merciful to us. And we praise you, we glorify you, we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen.